You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 102 of the Weekly Group Podcast. My name is Austin Staten, and I'm joined in the studio this week by Jeremy Paxson. And uh, for our listeners out there, we have two amazing guests on today's show. We've got Richard Deitch from Sports Illustrated, who's going to be joining us on the phone line here in just a few moments. We've also got Sean Pendergast, who's going to join us in studio here in Houston, uh, talk a little NBA, talk a little Texans before training camps, and a little Baylor football and Matt Rule. Uh, but Jeremy, uh, how's it going, man? It's going great. Um, I actually had the privilege of seeing uh, Dunkirk yesterday, and so I'm so stoked off of seeing that film. It was a completely amazing. Uh, it's kind of kind of weird. Like people are talking about it like being an Oscar contender, and it's strange because it's come out in July. And usually those Oscar contenders are kind of released November, December, like right before award season. So the judges have it in their mind. But really, um, really fantastic film. I definitely recommend seeing it. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. I do know someone who has already uh, seen it three times uh, since its debut. Uh, but I, the reviews that I've heard have just been positive, and I've heard that you have to see it in IMAX. So I'm a huge World War II history buff. Uh, Saving Private Ryan is probably one of my top five films of all time, and I think I think this one is one that I'm highly anticipating. But also, as you heard uh, through the intro song, we played a little bit of Lincoln Park. Uh, and if you, uh, I guess, have been living under a rock, uh, tragic news this week as uh, Lincoln Park frontman Chester Bennington uh, passed away uh, due to suicide. And uh, Jeremy, I know that. We were both fans of Lincoln Park, early 2000s, you know, when Meteora was like, I don't know, the album that I feel that every teenage male was listening to on repeat. Uh, You know, what are your thoughts after hearing uh, the tragic news from Chester Biddington? You know, I I did not know the extent of his drug and alcohol problem, and I think that probably had something to do with his suicide. I also know it was sort of synchronized with Chris Cornell's birthday, I believe. And yeah. so he he definitely planned this out. And it's very, very tragic, very sad. But I think it probably, you know, this will probably go into, you know, the, the discussion about, um, you know, in rock and roll, you know, the, these bands and these these lead singers, they, they tend to lead very turbulent lives, kind of no matter like what band they happen to represent. And I, I think it's maybe indicative of a, of a larger problem within music that, that needs to be worked on because like we've lost like what, like three lead singers, like Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington, and I forget the other guy that committed suicide here uh, relatively recently, within the last couple of years. Yeah. And they're all kind of from a certain like air, like between like the 90s and early 2000s of rock and roll. Yeah, it's definitely tragic. But I mean, this is something that is sort of stricken rock and roll for as long as I can remember. I mean, right. dating back to the right. 70s, 80s, I mean, this was something that we saw frequently i feel now it's more depression related uh so you know it 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 is very disappointing and our our thoughts of prayers go out to uh the bennington family and also uh you know the rest of lincoln park who you know they're dealing with this uh tragedy but uh before we move on to other things real quick i want to remind you that episode 102 of the weekly brew podcast is brought to you by audible you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash weeklybrewcast and there are more more than 180,000 titles to choose from, uh, whether it's your iPhone, Android, or your Kindle device. And uh, that's audibletrial.com slash weeklybrewcast. And uh, definitely thank you to Audible for sponsoring this podcast. But uh, Jeremy, before we get into the the two interviews with Richard Deitch and Sean Pendergast here in a few moments, uh, big news story here in in Houston uh, dropped Monday afternoon around 2 o'clock when it was announced that Les Alexander is selling the Rockets after owning the franchise for 24 years, bringing two championships 
to the city in the mid nineties. This to me was shocking, you know, just days after announcing the Chris Paul trade officially having Chris Paul day, CP three day Friday in Houston. And then three days later, he wants to sell the team, which is valued by Forbes at $1.65 billion. He bought the franchise for, you know, 85, 90 million, somewhere in that range. This had to have taken you by a little bit of surprise, right? Yeah, well, it, it just kind of announced on Twitter, like that it was happening. Like there was no, there was no like forewarning because usually when when teams are going to be you know bought and sold, there's sort of this 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 lead up to it. You know, there's rumors, there's leaks, there's the people pretty much understand like, well, such and such teams coming for sale. This is completely out of the blue, and um, I, I found it a little odd. You know, when stuff happens like that in sports, you got to wonder like there's something going on, like something happened and it's forced his hand, so he has to sell the team. But I mean, just like you said, I think he's got one point. Six five to potentially two point five billion reasons to sell the team. Obvi- you know, obviously a very honest or a very good investment. That's what I meant um, for him to, to to sell right now. But uh, my question, of course, and I think the question on everybody's minds is who's going to take over the helm. There's been a lot of speculation this week, and honestly, the first name that came to my mind was Tillman Fertitta. Of course, I mean, right when I heard the Rock- dollar buyer. yeah, right yeah. right when I heard, I, I actually sent out a tweet saying Tillman Fertitta has to be one of the candidates for this, right? He's one of the only other billionaires, a guy who can pay for this team in cash up front without having to get a partnership group together. Obviously, he's wanted to own a professional sports franchise here in Houston for who knows how long. Uh, He was rumored to be the number two guy wanting to buy the Rockets back in the, in no, the 90s ahead I, I believe of he Les was. Alexander. And yeah, I, think like, he, I think their his, bids were something like 4 or $5 million apart, and it was only settled, like I guess, in right. court. So Tillman Fertitta seems to be the front runner. He's expressed interest that he wants to buy the team. Whether or not the economics make sense, to be determined. Some other names that we've heard thrown around, Mattress Mac, I think that's more of a publicity stunt. Uh, we've heard that uh, Dikembe Mutombo is interested in getting a partnership group together. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I still think Tillman's a front runner, but you also have to look at the wild card. The Rockets have a huge market in China. Do you potentially see a Chinese investor come in and drop $3 billion trying to you know, get this franchise? That would, that would be um, completely unexpected. Um, honestly, as a you know, kind of a casual Rockets fan. My, my concern, and I think, you know, looking on the internet and some of the, the comment boards, what people are saying is they're concerned about the Rockets leaving Houston. Yeah, that's not I, I don't think that's going to happen, but that no, seems a, to be... As our president says quite often, that's fake news. Right, right. Well, and it, it's funny because I, I think Houston fans, Houston sports fans in general still have like this like post-traumatic stress from when the Oilers left. Right, but let's you stop know. real quick. The reason why the Oilers left is because Bud Adams couldn't get a stadium built right. here in Houston. The Rockets, or I'm sorry, the Astros under Drake McLean threatened to leave for Virginia in the late 90s. They ultimately got Minute Maid Park built. The Toyota Center is an amazing stadium. I believe the lease goes through like 2030 or something like that. The Rockets actually own the lease, which is completely rare. It's the third largest, about to be the third largest city in the United States, like the eighth largest media market. They've got... You know, James Harden locked up for the next six years. This team's going nowhere. The only person that I had that I heard suggest that this team could move was Mattress Mac, who I think was trying to do it for marketing purposes. He had a sponsored post on Facebook, you know, saying that he would love to buy the Rockets. But if you look at it, 
every other comment below is suggesting that people go and buy furniture to help keep the rockets here in Houston. I mean, come on, man. Well, that, that's clever. It's kind of like what he does with like the Texans and the Astros. Right. Like if you buy furniture and the, something happens, and you get, get to keep it for free. More often than not, that works out in his favor. But no, I, I don't think the rockets are going anywhere. It's just it, it's it's interesting. I, I think the chances of them moving are probably higher than uh, a Chinese investor coming in and buying the team. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I do ultimately think it will be probably Tillman Fertitta. So what and do you think of that? I mean, I, he, he's I, kind I, of a brash guy. He's a host of Billion Dollar Buyer on CNBC. He seems to have a lot of business interest within the city of Houston, obviously, with, with his Landry's portfolio that has grown internationally. But is he kind of like a Mark Cuban? You know, he his personality, you know, when I hear him interviewed on the radio, uh, which seems to be on a quite, you know, a fairly regular basis, he does give off that persona, like that kind of overbearing, like, you know, wealthy, kind of like megalomaniac. Not, not that that's, you know, entirely a bad thing, because once you get to that point, that's just kind of what happens. But um, I don't think he would be quite as bad as Mark Cuban. And I think I can say that because, I mean, there were several times, you know, as owner of the Mavericks that, you know, players would say, hey, get out of our huddle. Like, we, we, you've got to let us play the game. I don't think he, he would be quite that bad. But certainly, I think um, his ownership of the team would be more eventful, I think, from the owner's perspective than, say, you know, the way it's been under Alexander. I mean, we'll see what happens. I, th- I think Tillman is ultimately going to be the owner. I mean, yeah. if, we're, if we're laying odds right now, he's got to be the odds-on favorite, right? Oh, sure. I, I think he's, he's always wanted to own a team within the state i think that the, the rock i mean he's tried to buy the, he tried to buy the rockets way back in the day he, he missed out i mean obviously <laughs> you know he's he's kind of getting taken a little bit on the price right because it's grown exponentially since then but i think he wants it and i think he's going to get it there's, yeah. there's no doubt we'll see uh hopefully within the next year we'll have some movement on this but i think some names will start to emerge here in the next few weeks as serious contenders uh, to purchase this team and uh you know thanks to the past 24 years also alexander you brought two championships here to Houston. Hopefully you can get one more before uh, the team is officially sold. But uh, the other big story to kind of impact uh, the city of Houston this week occurred on Tuesday when uh, Carlos Correa tore a ligament in his thumb and is out until September. Jeremy, I know you're just starting to get into baseball uh, as the Astros are making the push toward October. The uh, The trade deadline uh, is approaching us here in just about a week, and there's a lot of speculation that the Astros are still going to make a move, whether it's to bolster that bullpen with a left-handed arm or perhaps uh, go for a guy like Sonny Gray or Jason Verlander, uh, but Carlos Correa going out for six to eight weeks, all-star, 21, 22 years old. Uh, this has to have you just a little bit concerned, right? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I, I, I've been watching this Astros team for a little while now and um, really encouraged by what I've seen. Um, it, it, it is worth noting that he will be back um, a couple of weeks before, you know, playoff starts and he'll get some, he'll get some warm-up games. Um, against what, Boston. Yeah, Boston is yeah. the last series of the uh, the regular season. So that is encouraging that he's not going to be coming back right as the playoffs start. He's got about two to three weeks uh, to get back in a baseball shape, if you will. Uh, and, and I think that's very helpful. Uh, something that is also encouraging is Mike Trout have the same right. injury. And Mike Trout is, you know, Mr. MVP, uh, arguably one of the best players, if not the best player in baseball. So I think that's got to be uh, comforting. But he, I, I guess Correa underwent surgery successfully on Thursday. So it's now a recovery process. Hopefully uh, he could be back in middle September and help with the Astros as they uh, contend to win the American League. But uh, let's move on to our last uh, topic 
break here before we head into the interviews with Richard Dyche and Sean Pendergast. And uh, it's kind of funny, just a little peek behind the curtain. So each week on the show, we create a Google document, right? And this Google document will drop in some of the big storylines of the week. And uh, oftentimes, you know, as the week progresses, sometimes the storylines just don't mean as much on Sunday when we record as they did on Monday. So last week, we were going to discuss uh, Houston Nuts' lawsuit that he had filed against Ole Miss and uh, Ole Miss head coach Hugh Freeze. Uh, But we decided, uh, you know... Probably wasn't the best time. Let's, pick, just, let's just sit it out. There's yeah. a lot going on. We don't need to yeah, talk about we were like, this. We were like, you know, we don't really have a huge Ole Miss fan base. But sure enough, <laughs> lo and behold, this week <laughs> drops right into our lap. Hugh Freeze <laughs> says, guys, you should have talked about me on the Weekly Brew podcast because uh, he got fired. And he got fired not because of NCAA violations, but uh, I guess he made a few phone calls on his university-issued cell phone to escort services on the company phone is that really the issue here is that it's not that he called escorts is that he did it on the company phone i mean come on i mean here's my question because i was going over this in my head i I was thinking like if he had been in vegas right and if he hadn't used the company phone like would this be an issue and this this was in detroit right right oh this was in detroit i believe the number was like a detroit number and then he tried to tell yahoo sports that uh he misdialed (laughs) He said that he tried to dial like an eight instead of a three, and it's like those aren't even close on the cell phone. I wish I could use that excuse when this happened to me. <laughs> I, I'm joking; it's never happened to me. But no, but seriously, it's it's you know, old Miss fans. This is this is tragic. You're you're losing your head coach. It's a big deal. But you know what? As a as a as a Baylor alumni and a Baylor fan, be thankful. I wish Art Bryles had gone out this way. I mean, there there are all the you know several ways a head coach can go out. Right, our browser is like the worst, of the worst, and so I'm thinking, like, man, if he had gone out like this, like this guy would still have a, he he'd still get a statue of Baylor. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. But it it is sad if you're an Ole Miss fan. They're obviously uh, gonna. I bet Jim Grobe is uh, trying to silence his phone right now, <laughs> um, or his wife is trying to keep it silent. I I think to me though, the thing that I find fascinating is none of this would have happened had Hugh Freeze not tried to pin all of these NCAA violations on Houston Nutt. All Houston Nutt wanted, like, last year was an apology. And Ole Miss, Hugh Freeze, they doubled down, didn't apologize, and then he said, you know what? I'm going to file a lawsuit because you've defamed my name. You've drug it through the mud. And look what he found, you know, through the, the FOIA request. He found calls on there to escort services. I mean, come on, Hugh Freeze. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think you're untouchable? Right. Well, it's what they say about people in glass houses or whatever. I mean, it's 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 I, I, I think it's silly. Um, I think it was probably avoidable had he just like, you know, just not called an escort on. A, right. On I mean, you're married. You have a wife. <laughs> right. I know you have kids. <laughs> I believe he has like three daughters. I mean, what are they going through right now? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I can't imagine. Um, I, I think if you're if you're if you're an Ole Miss fan, um, you know, you're you're definitely devastated by this. But the family of a man who's going through this is absolutely in turmoil. And I, I do feel for them. Um, my question is, is looking kind of forward to the future. I mean, Ole Miss is in the re- last couple of years under the you know, leadership of Freeze become a power in the SEC. You know, who steps up to the plate now to take that spot and try to continue that momentum? That's the hard the part season? because yeah. Ole Miss is not in a, re- they're not in a fertile recruiting ground. A lot of the recruits that they had under freeze were coming from, you know, Florida, Texas, Georgia, you know, he he was able to get those top recruits from other States. You have to play 
if you're Ole Miss, in arguably the toughest division in college football, you've got Alabama, you've got LSU, you've got Auburn, you've got Arkansas, you've got Mississippi State, you have Texas A&M. That's not an easy division to play college football in. And, no. so, and, and so if you're Ole Miss, it's like, you know, you're going to be able to pay a lot of money because I think Ole Miss boosters got that taste of winning. They want to continue to win. But are you still going to be able to bring in those recruits with this cloud of NCAA penalties hovering over your campus? Well, that's a really good question. And I think the answer to that is, um, or at least partially, there are a lot of schools that, pe- that, that recruits want to go play for Bama. Recruits want to go play for LSU. They, they, they're the thing of the school because they know the school's top-notch facilities. They're always going to have good coaches, no matter who's there. But if you were going to Ole Miss as a recruit, you were going to play for Freeze, right? Um, I don't think Ole Miss has the name, the name ID, and advantage that a lot of those old other schools. Like if this had happened to Nick Saban, God forbid, you know, if you're a Bama fan, I think Alabama would be just fine, right? They'd find um, you'd you have know, maybe a down year. Yeah, they'd have a down right. year or two, but they but they would be fine. You get somebody or, like a Dabo Sweeney to come in, yeah, or like right. or LSU. I mean, because you, you, the 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 pocketbook is limitless for that school, right? They can get anybody they want. Um, Ole Miss is is gonna. It's honestly, it's gonna be kind of like the challenge faced by Baylor because Baylor was kind of the same way. I mean, recruits came to Baylor to play for our Bryles. They didn't come to Baylor to play for Baylor, um, at least initially. And so, it's gonna be a challenge for them to find somebody that's willing to take up that spot. They'll probably have an interim coach, I imagine, or like one of the assistants step up. But it's it'll be interesting to see who they find. Yeah, of course, college football is just what five weeks away, six weeks away. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this it, couldn't it, happen at a worse time. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, yeah, it's 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 right around the corner. I know, I know, we're looking forward to college football. Uh, Labor Day weekend when we just have so many games at our disposal. I think it's just going to be such a, uh, an amazing time, and I'm really looking forward to it. But we also have two really good guests on today's show. We've got Richard Deitch from Sports Illustrated. He'll be joining us here in about uh, 60 seconds. And also Sean Pendergast is going to join us in studio here in just a few moments. Again, we're going to talk Texans. We're going to talk Rockets. We're going to talk NBA and a little bit of Baylor and Matt Rule. So we hope you stay tuned for that conversation. But uh, if you want to follow our work, you can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also subscribe to our our website at weeklybrewcast.com. But uh, without further ado, we've got two great guests on deck. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Richard Deitch, a writer and editor for Sports Illustrated and also the host of the SI Media podcast. And uh, Richard, I appreciate you for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, great to be here. One of the things that I'm most fascinated about about your job is the fact that you you cover sports media. You know, whether it's what's going on at ESPN, what's going on at Fox, uh, you've got your weekly column in Sports Illustrated that usually drops Sunday evening. But you also go into sports uh, stories, what some of the best stories were around the country, and also uh, you sometimes touch on politics. I guess if you can, uh, how unique is the position that you have? Uh, at Sports Illustrated, and how have you kind of uh, let that position evolve over time? Well, you know, in terms of uniqueness, there have been people who've covered sports media at Sports Illustrated, um, you know, long before my time. There was a, um, there were sports media profiles and features and columns in the magazine in the 70s. Uh, guys named William Taff and Jack Craig were, uh, well, maybe Jack Craig was in Boston, but William Taff was a very well-known sports media writer at Sports Illustrated, so he would do profiles of like Howard Cosell and Moon Arledge and people, obviously, who were prominent back in the 70s. Um, that continued at SI through the 80s and through the 90s in the magazine. And when I got there um, in, around 2000, um, there, were still, um, there was still a sports media presence 
in the magazine. Um, I didn't start off there, but by a certain point, um, I became part of a rotation that would uh, just contribute items to what then was a single sports media page in the magazine or even sometimes less than a page. Um, where sort of things changed for me, at least in terms of the speed, is once I shifted my um, location more from the magazine to the web, um, and I was doing other things at the time, including a special projects editor there. I was covering the Olympics and tennis. Uh, I just asked the bosses there, like, if I could uh, start doing a media column every couple of weeks um, since they were trying and experimenting on different things. They were cool with it. Uh, and then from there, that eventually turned into something that was weekly and then multiple times a week. And I, I would say the sort of the big uh, – the reason why um, it started to get traction – was because places like Deadspin and other sports blogs just started really covering sports media figures and I think proved that there was a pretty big demand for this kind of content. There were places like Sports Business Daily that had always done it. Obviously, USA Today had done it famously with Rudy Marsky. But uh, sports blogs were really the first place where um, they would do it almost on a daily basis. A lot of times those were stories that were kind of embarrassing to the networks. But they proved that the you know, there was interest in the content. And so, you know, if I got lucky on anything, it was just that I happened to be doing this at kind of the right time when the sports blogosphere exploded. And I think people realized that there was genuine interest in the people that you see every day, particularly on television, who bring you these games to your home. Yeah, to me, I, I, I find your column just like must read on uh, Monday mornings, typically when I get to the office. But uh, it, it kind of one of the things that I like about it is that you do talk sports, you do talk pop culture and a little bit of politics. And, uh, you know, to me, it kind of reminds me back in, in high school when I read this book called How Soccer Explains the World. And I love that it talked on uh, economics, politics and uh, soccer, obviously. And uh, earlier this week in your column, you had a, a great Q&A with uh, Jordan Kronick. Uh, who was, I guess, the producer behind the HBO Real Sports profile of Chechen President uh, Ramzan Kadyrov this past week. And to me, that was just such a fascinating conversation that you had with him and then also the, the segment on Real Sports. And I, I, I guess my question for you is this, with a lot of blowback from, it, it seems like, fans who don't like that ESPN try to tries to politicize things or Clay Travis trying to politicize things, I guess is there a need for programs like HBO Real Sports that can cover these sensitive topics, such as what we saw with the profile with Kadyrov? Yeah, first of all, uh, if you're hearing noise in the background, uh, I apologize. Uh, I'm at a Y in Brooklyn, so enjoy the natural sound <laughs> behind you of people putting stuff together. Um, yeah, of course. Listen, uh, there's always going to be people out there, especially on Twitter, who are like, stick to sports, and where we don't read sports places for politics, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the, the, the fact is, everything is sort of politics and intertwined into politics from race to economics to wherever it is. You can't escape it. No one is saying that you have to be inundated every second with political thought. But the fact is, and the reality is, that that, that is part of the world. So there will always be a place for what HBO Real Sports does, which is really the highest level of um, television sports journalism that's out there. And, you know, their piece where they went to interview the um, – you know, the leader of the Chechnya Republic uh, crossed over from sports into, into you know, global news in that they were the first Western publication to uh, a Western outlet to have interviewed this guy in three years. Nominally, it was about how he's using MMA to create a bit of a cult within his country and obviously his 
dreams and goals and desires to push his MMA club into mainstream MMA to fight against UFC. So nominally, it's a sports story, and obviously that's probably why he allowed HBO Sports in there was right. to get the message out um, on his end. But what made news, of course, was the correspondent for HBO, David Scott, asking him about uh, the reports, which seem incredibly credible, that if you are gay in Chechnya, you are rounded up, you are tortured, sometimes murdered. And, um, and you know, you saw his response uh, to those questions, laughed him off, basically attacked and sort of threatened the U.S. But that, you know, that, that is major news. And kudos to HBO Real Sports for doing that. So to me, that's just, in terms of what I do, in terms of covering sports media, that's just a inter- really interesting sports media story. So that was a no-brainer to do. And I didn't get any blowback at all from anybody right. um, about that. To be, to be very honest with you, what um, is a tricky thing for me is I want to do that kind of stuff. And I like talking to producers. And like what, what Jordan Cronick did to me was fascinating. I mean, that's really journalism and reporting. But the problem is that inevitably, if I did something on, uh, you know, here are five things Bill Simmons must do today to get back on TV, or here are the three biggest destinations for Katie Nolan, that's going to quadruple or quintuple in traffic. So that's what I always have to fight against is basically doing stuff that I know is easy um, to get page views. And obviously, I want to keep my job. But at the same time, I know and I think I have a sense of what is really interesting and important. So I try to mix them up. But that, if there's any – to sort of answer your question, there's no blowback on my end for politics. And quite frankly, if anybody complains, I, I really don't care. I'm still going to do it. The larger issue is – I'm hoping that there's enough people out there who are interested in this stuff because you are in a industry where you have to get people to read you. And I can easily do the stuff that is readable, but that's not always anything other than just putting lists together or, you know, almost, I mean, it's probably not gossip, but it sort of falls in that world. So at least for the Cronin thing, it was certainly less about people saying, "Don't don't get into politics or don't politicize sports media coverage. And more like, are enough people going to read this versus if I focused on a well-known personality where I know I'll get a you know six figures page views? Yeah, I, I, I definitely like uh, you know when you do touch into political issues, I think that it's very important to know, especially with the political climate that we have uh, here in the United States. But one of the things that kind of fascinated about the uh, Kadyrov uh, interview was you know obviously his homophobic slurs, uh, condoling condoning violence and like honor killings. Uh, towards gays in his country. And I don't know, when I look at the big fight that's being promoted right now on a lot of the networks, August 26th, of course, Mayweather McGregor, we saw their press tour last week uh, all across the U.S. and over in the U.K., and there was very misogynistic tones used. There was very uh, homophobic language that was used. I don't understand from my perspective how the sports media, you know, I, I don't know how how they can separate these two because essentially it seems like both organizations are are condoning this violence to a degree, except one is actually executing that violence. I don't know. Is there a balance for how the rest of the media can cover, uh, you know, what's going on with the UFC and, and Mayweather McGregor? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'll sort of take it from a lot, number of levels. First of all, the Showtime, the UFC, um, they're all enabling this stuff. Uh, there's no way around it. They're supporting uh, homophobic talk. They're supporting racist talk. They can claim that they're not, but they are. They're putting these two guys in the middle of these arenas to try to hype up the fight. 
they know what these guys are going to say. They know where they're going to go. And it's not even they're looking the other way. They're celebrating it. They're pushing it. They're organizing it. Now, where it gets kind of interesting and tough is, well, Sports Illustrated is writing about this stuff, too. And we're putting photos of McGregor all over the place. We had a guy who was riding on a plane with McGregor. So, quite frankly, we're complicit as well in all this. Now, the reporters for my place and, um, and Dan Raphael, actually, I got into sort of, I wouldn't say a back and forth with him on Twitter, but he, he, he made a very fair point, is I think you just have to be discerning in that there are journalists who are going to cover this because it's a news story, which it absolutely is. And so the hope is that good places, and I feel like SI, generally speaking, has done this. Not every piece of content we've done, but certainly the guys who are coming boxing have done it. You, you, cover the, you cover this event because it is newsworthy, because there are two major, major athletic stars in their sports fighting against each other, even if the fight itself will probably end up being ridiculous and being very short. So you have to cover it journalistically. I think you obviously have to point out just um, how these organizations are absolutely enabling the kind of language and stuff that's going on. But I can't, I couldn't sit here and defend somebody if they said, you know, you guys at SI, ESPN, um, the New York Times, or whoever else covers this stuff, you are all complicit and enabling this. Because I think there's an honest argument to be made that that is true. So I don't have a perfect answer for you because the fight is going to be covered. Um, they are using this stuff to promote the fight and legitimate places are um, going to cover it. Even the places that have been critical and writing columns like, hey, you don't have to write for either guy. Well, I would argue that piece is also promoting the fight because you're still mentioning why right. you're not rooting for either guy. So I don't have a great answer. I think we're all complicit. I've tried not to write about it as much um, in my own little tiny, tiny, tiny universe. I've been thinking about do I do like a roundtable with some boxing writers about covering this and sort of maybe getting into the queasiness part of it. But then I think to myself, if I do that, all I'm doing is promoting the fight too. So I don't, I'm not sure – what to do there. So uh, it's not a satisfactory answer for you, but it's a, but I think it's an honest one. I think we're all complicit. To me, it kind of reminds me of how the media had to cover the presidential election with Donald Trump last year. I think there's a lot of a lot of similarities with the language and the rhetoric that's been used. And, and, and to me, that's very unfortunate. But I kind of want to pivot on to something else real quick. And, uh, you know, it's no secret that 2017 has been very, very difficult for those that cover sports, you know, whether it's the layoffs at Fox, uh, ESPN, or, you know, other publications throughout the country. And even on Friday today, uh, it was announced that Vice Sports will cease to exist as a website. And, you know, I don't know. If we're having this conversation, Richard, in, say, five or ten years, what does the sports media landscape look like? I mean, what is it like to be a sports journalist five, ten years from now? I, honestly, I'm not sure anybody knows. It's a one just very small clarification. I think Vice may still have a website. It's just not clear what it's going to be. It's clearly going to be video-based. Um, they did get rid of their writers and editors today, which is just really disappointing because it was such a good site. Um, information is going to exist. The demand for sports knowledge and sports news is going to exist. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The question is going to be, what is the medium or what is the model where people can do this stuff and make money in it? So there's never not going to be sports writers or sports journalists or sports bloggers. The question is, where are the places going to be where you can actually make a living doing it? Um, Probably what we're going to see more of is places starting out like the Athletic and um, uh, Dejan, um, I'm going to mangle his name, but he's a writer in Pittsburgh who um, started his own website, basically individually run, uh, where he's supported by subscriptions, 38,000 people who basically subscribe to the site. They're paying 
money, so it's basically direct to consumer. I think we're going to see more of those kind of startups. But the only solving the issue here, and this I'm talking about is outside of the few jobs at ESPN, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, places like that are always going to be around. Probably single big papers and big markets will be around. But the only way I think the business can sort of turn around is you're going to have to find these new models where um, consumers will pay for the product. That, that's where, uh, and there's no guarantee, because so many people who are under the age of 35, basically, have been conditioned for their entire life not to pay for content on the web. I think right. the only way that can change is, or the only way things can eventually come back is I think you're going to have to train a whole generation of making it worthwhile for them to pay for sports content. Um, so there's always going to be people working, and there will always be sites. What I can't tell you is I just I don't know if there's going to I don't know how many places will exist where you can make a living on that salary. That that's the more important question. Information will never die. There'll always be people writing. The question is, what will the market be in terms of supporting you so you can you know you can live in an apartment or a house and raise a family? That's those are the big questions. Yeah, I definitely have a few friends that have been affected from the, uh, you know, the layoffs recently. It's really unfortunate to see that because I know they're very talented individuals and, you know, hope that they do land on their feet. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not a journalist, but I am a communicator. I work in PR. Uh, and one of the things that I feel that my industry has done over the past, you know, five to 10 years, is I feel that you've been forced to evolve. You can't just write press releases anymore. You have to know how to edit. You have to know how to shoot video. You have to know how to uh, do design work. There's so many different mediums that you have to be able to, uh, I guess, capitalize on as a communicator in order to be successful. And I feel like that's almost the same thing now when it comes to journalists. Like a lot of journalists are being asked to do uh, on camera. They're being asked to do short snippets uh, and even podcasts now. We've seen, uh, you know, The Ringer has a very successful podcast network. ESPN just launched their 30 for 30 podcast. Uh, you've got a podcast that I think is great, the sports media podcast. What are the benefits I guess, from podcasting? And do you see that as a potential medium uh, that could be, that, I guess, bridge that gap between what we saw five, 10 years ago to, uh, you know, the new technologies and new platforms? Well, there's no doubt that podcasting is only going to grow. Um, I don't know if podcasting is going to be the savior of sports journalism, but it's, all, it's definitely going to be a part of it because uh, just think about it. It's a medium uh, which is portable. It's on demand. Um, it's accessible to phones, which generally speaking is younger than older. So, and it's a great forum. It's just an intimate forum, a connection forum. So it's going to be around, and people, uh, more people in the sports journalism business will absolutely go into it and continue to figure out, you know, um, even if people are quote-unquote late to market, they're still going to get there, and I think you can still build an audience up fairly quickly if you have the right um, content. But you're right. I mean, you're, you know, people who are entering the field today are going to have to do many, many different things, from both video to podcasting to social media to traditional writing um, and they're going to probably have to do it for less money than they expected. What I think, you, know, you brought up that you're in PR which is interesting, I think one of the things that is absolutely going to happen and already is, is I think you know, a, lot of, a lot of people who um, would have gone into journalism, particularly sports journalism or who are early in their career in sports journalism who are going to move out of the field because they can no longer find work in the field and will probably move to similar professions in terms of skills, PR, marketing, advertising, government work, et cetera. So that, that's one thing that sadly is going to happen is we are going to lose a lot of really talented people who normally would have done this because they're going to go into fields that are far more safe. I mean, I work at Sports Illustrated. We've had layoffs. But even beyond that, there's probably like in the last like three months, 
I've seen three or four uh, people who are in their 20s who decide to go back to school for hmm. different things, whether it be law school, whether it's public policy. But they've, they, they, in a different era, I think would have stayed in at SI, but instead they decided to go back to school and do something else. And those numbers are going to be huge, and you'll never be able to count them accurately, but, but, but we're going to lose a lot of people in the business for sure. You know, I, I guess the last thing that I want to touch on before I let you go is uh, Fox, you know, FS1, the network, uh, obviously Jamie Horowitz, the scandal that kind of uh, took a lot of people by surprise a few weeks ago, uh, compiled by the layoffs that happened just about a month or two ago. It, it seems that the network has not been able to really uh, get off of its feet, if you will. Uh, you know, the, the Fox Sports Live failed. Uh, the Katie Nolan was, you know, in my opinion, one of the only bright spots on the network, and they've essentially run her to the curb. Do you see a path for success for FS1 moving forward, or do you think this... I don't know, whole video model and then the Skip Bayless model is ultimately going to make them fold? Well, you got you to separate the two. The digital business is different than the TV business. It's a, uh, entirely two different things. Even though they're linked and sort of editorially, um, they're different. And right now, FoxSports.com is a digital site. It's just it's a nonsense mess. It's not even honestly worth talking about. Repackaging, hot takers, um, it's, just a, it's just a terrible strategy both to make money as well as editorially, and eventually they're going to change that. I don't know what they're going to change it to, but they're going to have to, or they should just shut down. It can't, it, it can't be it can't be sustained even if it's cheap. FS1 is an interesting story in that um, you're right. They started off trying to be what they consider to be a fun alternative to ESPN, invested a lot of money in similar ESPN-like programming, including Fox Sports Live. They did not get the ratings they wanted for a pretty big expenditure, uh, brought in Jamie Horowitz and changed the entire editorial philosophy to bring in basically opinionists um, to add a lot of money to do what the Skip Baylesses of the world do. They were able to raise ratings a little bit, but the question is not really to the point where those expenditures, I think, are really making you money. And beyond that, your identity now is sort of wrapped in people who are just saying – I mean, I don't know if we're allowed to curse, but I saw just – say bleep who are just saying bleep every day about lebron james like right. or colin kaepernick that's just that's a pretty bad identity in my opinion to push to the marketplace now fs1 because it's fox has a lot of good sports rights properties they're going to have the big 10 uh this fall which is a great college football conference property they're going to have baseball and you saw like what they did with the cubs last year which was incredible and they're going to be able to sell against that so they're going to make money on their baseball package they obviously have the nfl and even though games aren't on Fox Sports 1, they have highlights and they're able to talk about stuff on that network. They have UFC. They have NASCAR. So they have some pretty good programming. Um, so, the, so the network itself is not a dud. And they get, I think, about a buck twenty for every cable subscriber to it. So the likelihood is they are making money because they don't have a lot of – they've reduced their cost by laying off all these people. These studio shows do not cost anything, essentially, relative to other stuff. But you make an interesting point, and this is the more important point. How sustainable is this model heading forward, and can you sell people, including cable companies, on a network that essentially 12 hours a day regurgitates the same stupid takes? Um, you know, Horowitz, he was sort of right and wrong. He would say SportsCenter was dying, and you know, people want opinion above all. And I, there's no doubt that people like opinion, but 12 straight hours of opinion is an insane programming uh, uh, cha charter to me. And so I would think 
the big decision for Fox Sports 1 with these executives is going to come when these big contracts are up, Bayless and Coward and Chris Carter and the rest of these guys. What are they going to do? Are they going to resign these guys to continue on this path, or will they let those contracts play out and then figure out another strategy you know, two or three years from now? They're, they're kind of, unfortunately for them, in a position where they have to stay the course of the guy they just fired over a sexual harassment probe because the, there is no alternative, if that makes any sense to you. They, just The alternative would be let's invest $40 million to try to figure out something else, and they're not going to do that. So they're, they're stuck with this for now, and if you want to put it in like sort of poker terms, like they're stuck with like a pair of twos. Right. The alternative is to give all your cards back and hope something better happens. This is no, no, real, no good choice at the moment, basically. Nick Wright, he's a guy that uh, uh, was here in Houston a while back working with Sports Radio 610. Uh, he's got his own show that's actually debuting in New York. Uh, what are your prospects for him? I think Nick's smart. Um, what I hope for Nick's sake is that he doesn't get trapped into what often happens to people who take these jobs, and that's the pressure to sort of say something that gets attention or the pressure – to say something where you go viral because ultimately that's what your bosses um, really, really want. And, um, you know, professionally and financially, he made the right call. He, I guarantee whatever he was making in Houston, he's probably making eight times now as much um, co-hosting a live national sports show. But that would, you know, I've seen so many times that people, um, they sort of get these kind of jobs and they go from uh, thoughtful realists to, you know, basically kind of the the hot takes that, you know, as an intellectual sports fan, you just shake your head and like, man, that's a shame. This guy became just, quote, unquote, one of them. So we'll see. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think there's going to be uh, there's going to be pressure on them in that it's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot of attention on them because they're a, a morning show on a major sports network. But then conversely, no one is expecting them to do major ratings. Right. So, you know what I mean? It's not like you're going to expect them to get 300,000 viewers. And the show exists, honestly, only as a lead-in to promote the Bayless show. So I'll be interested. I mean, they, you know, they have an opportunity maybe to do something a little different in the morning where they just go a different round and they just, you know, they don't take the same five topics that everybody's debating for the whole day and, and debate them. But... I don't know. I, I mean, I'll be honest. With you, I'm a cynic with all this stuff, and my instinct would my instinct would be that they're, you know, they're just going to head down to let's talk LeBron, Dak Prescott, Boston Celtics, uh, uh, you know, like, you know, how how what is Paul George going to do? Is LeBron as good as George? You know, I mean, the same 50 topics that get regurgitated over and over again. Um, you know, and in Carter and Wright's case, they'll probably do NFL stuff too because that's Carter's strength. So we'll see. It, 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 on the face of it, it's not exactly a show that has me super excited. But for Chris Carter, obviously Nick Wright, these are no-brainer decisions. You take that job, you run with it, and you take the near million dollars that Fox Sports One's giving you, and you change your life. Richard, it's been great having you on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. I uh, definitely appreciate you taking your time uh, to join us. And uh, w- when we release this podcast, your Sunday column will have just dropped. Uh, can you let our listeners know what they can kind of look forward to this week? Uh, wow, look at that. Promotion for me, uh, <laughs> which you do not need to do. Um, I- I'm actually sort of still working on a couple of different things, although um, one of the things for sure that I'm going to write about is uh, the Sports Network's interest in O.J. Simpson. 
And though the likelihood is that he would never go to a sports network to do an interview, uh, especially one of the first ones, especially given that he could get paid a lot for any interview, I, I, I kind of want to examine the value proposition of an ESPN or an FS1 or an NBC Sports contemplating it. Uh, because there's no doubt that the, there'll be massive viewership on it. But at the same time, you get some significant blowback from people saying, why are you interviewing this guy? So um, there'll be other stuff as well, but that's kind of something I've been thinking about. What is it? The juice is loose. It's uh, definitely been a story that's been dominating headlines here uh, the past few days. But again, uh, Richard Deitch, you can follow him at Richard Deitch on Twitter and then also his SI Media Podcast, which you can download on Art19. And uh, Richard, it's been great having you on the show this week. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Thank you. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us in studio right now, uh, I guess from his international debut, is uh, Sean Pendergast. He was on, what was it, CNN, the Philippines? CNN Philippines, yeah. yeah so, okay, so you were talking about Mello to the Rockets. Then, of course, Friday we heard the news about Kyrie uh, demanding a trade from Cleveland. And then there was you know, all this speculation, rumors that maybe Mello goes to uh, Cleveland. Uh, where do you stand now after your, your big debut internationally? Uh, on the whole Mello thing? Mello, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, because I have a take on me talking on CNN Philippines. I was doing it via Skype. And the one thing I learned that is if, if I'm going to do more of these interviews via Skype, I need a cooler background <laughs> in my office that I did it from. Like a, my girlfriend and I live in this house and I have this bedroom that I've wanted to turn into an office. But like I, I, you know, I actually go to an office in a studio every day. So it hasn't been a huge priority until CNN Philippines calls and like you're going to be on Skype. So I'm like, crap, I got to put some cool stuff in the background. <laughs> so I had a stormtrooper, yes. like a Lou Holtz autograph football. I'm like, there, here we go. But the, the angle I did it at, I looked like I was... Like, it, like the audience probably felt like a five-year-old kid, and I'm this menacing adult, like, looking down on them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, Carmelo Anthony, I'm, like, staring down into the camera. Anyways, I still am in favor, as I was during that interview, of a, um, of a Carmelo Anthony trade, as long as the Rockets execute what I think it is they're trying to do that's which Ryan is, Anderson, right? Which what's that? Is that dumping Ryan Anderson? Yeah, I, well, I think they're trying to do it without having to move Clint Capella. Okay, and to a lesser degree, Eric Gordon is the sense I get. I nobody's told me that from the Rockets, but they think very, very highly of Clint Capella. Eric Gordon is you know one of the movable pieces that has value because there are some immovable pieces on the team. You know, obviously you're not moving Harden, you're not moving Chris Paul. Um, I think Trevor Ariza borders on being an immovable piece just because we know that he's he was as big a part of the recruit. Maybe not right. as big as Harden, but he was an integral part of the recruiting of, of Chris Paul. So I think they're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too, which good general managers like to do, and you push it until as long as you can. I think they were really close to getting a deal done, and then all this New York clown show, hiring a GM in the middle of it. It's got to be so hard to do a deal it, well, it's got to be hard to do a deal with a team that doesn't have a general manager, which the Knicks didn't while this trade was being negotiated. And then to have that team be the Knicks you, on top of it, you know what I mean? It's like I, I compared it on my CBS show last week, like trying to play Monopoly with a six-year-old. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like trying to put a, a complicated four-team deal together with the Knicks being one of the four teams has to have like a degree of difficulty of like 9.97. But you know? Let me ask you, on the same note, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the, the – the tumultuous situation with the Knicks. Of course, you've got Dolan, who is just a nutcase as an owner. Uh, yeah. Phil Jackson on his way out. Yeah. But the Rockets, who you think seemingly are this great franchise, they're now up for sale. I mean, how much does that impact uh, potential free agents? Because I, I, I think, f- from what I understand, you know, Harden enjoys playing for Les Alexander. Yeah. He, he's a very engaged owner. 
does that kind of make you hesitant as a player when you're not sure who that next guy is going to be? I don't think it's going to... Well, here's the thing. By the time it really matters, we'll know who the next guy is going to be. You know what I mean? Like, because there, there are no... There's no free agency again till next July. Well, the team should be sold by then. There's plenty of interest in the team. That much I know. So it'll be sold by the time free agency rolls around. So the only guy we're really talking about here is Carmelo waving his no-trade clause. And I can't imagine he's looking at Cleveland, which is the other team he's waved it for. And he can always unwave it. You know what I mean? Like, ultimately, they're going to come to him with a trade scenario, and he's going to say yes or no as to whether or not he wants to go. I can't imagine he looks at Cleveland now with Kyrie Irving demanding a trade, with LeBron seemingly on his way out there going, oh, that looks like, you know, with Dan Gilbert as the owner there. Like, I'd rather go to a team with no owner than a team with Dan Gilbert as the owner when you hear some of these (laughs) things. So um, I don't think it impacts the Carmelo thing at all. It's going to be business as usual. The money's going to be there to go get him and trade for him. So I I really, in in the short term, I don't think it means much at all. And in the long term, we're going to know who it is by the time these guys are choosing to, to pick teams. And look, let's face it, Les Alexander is a great owner, the best owner in the history of this city, unless it's some clown that buys the team. And I think they're doing everything they can to make sure and vet it properly that Houston is going to get a good owner the next time around. Um, then the, the, the biggest key asset in the Rockets' favor is the fact they have James Harden here for the next six years. That's the most important thing to players. It's not so much who the owner is. LeBron went back to Cleveland knowing Dan Gilbert was the owner. That's a very fair you point. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's about what other star players, it's about their friends being there. So I think it's going to be business as usual. So we see... You know, in Major League Baseball, when Jim Crane came in, he essentially wiped out the front office. Yeah. Is there any chance that this owner wants to go in a different direction outside of Daryl Morey? I don't know. I, well, I think it'd be silly to do that. He's under a contractually signed a four-year extension, so you'd probably have to pay him. And secondly, I, who are you going to find who's better at doing this job than, than Daryl Morey's been? I get people are going to criticize the Rockets and criticize Daryl to a degree because they haven't won a championship. They haven't been to the finals. They've won, you know, you can count on one hand how many playoff series they've won in Daryl's time here. But if you dig into some layers of the nuance of what Daryl's had to deal with as the owner here, look at some of the mistakes that he's made and his ability to recover from those mistakes. I think that's been the biggest thing with Daryl is he's, he's done what seems like the impossible in terms of acquiring star players here, starting with James Harden. But he dealt from he dealt with adversity multiple times as a GM here. Some of it he couldn't control, like injuries to Yao and injuries right. to Tracy. Some of it were things that were ultimately uh, personnel decisions that didn't work out, whether it's um, you know, the, the end of the Dwight Howard era here you know, and how that all went. Right now he's trying to deal with Ryan Anderson's contract and getting rid of that. So I, I think Daryl's really good at uh, assessing value on things, at putting deals together, at getting – more value for the Rockets out of deals than their trade partners get out of those deals. Evaluation, and I think most importantly, kind of bouncing back from whatever adversity comes your way as a general manager, which is the biggest thing in any job that you have. So I think they'd be silly to get rid of uh, Daryl Morey if they were to come in here. I'm, you know, I, I have no idea if they're going to or not. We don't know who the owner's going right. to be, but I think it would be silly to do that. Yeah, with, with kind of the short list of owners that I've seen, um, it'd be hard to see that kind of move coming. However, if, you're, if you are a new owner and you're coming in and you're looking at the team structure and what Daryl's been doing, what do you think are the obstacles to the Rockets going further in the playoffs? And Golden possibly, State. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, like, because, uh, you know, the, it, there is a solution to the problem. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, like, what do you see as, like, the roadblocks to that? Yeah, well, the big one in the short term is Golden State. Like, that's yeah. it. I, I, you know, 
I was asking this question last year about the Rockets, and it sounds a little silly now considering how they went out in the playoffs, but we know there were times in the playoffs and during the regular season where we felt really, really good about this team, like as good as you felt about this franchise since Yao and Tracy. And I'll include two years ago when they went to the Western Conference Finals. Like There were times where you go, wow, this team is unstoppable offensively. Early in the San Antonio series, game one, you're going, wow, this team might smoke San Antonio. And So there were times where you were feeling that way about this team. And and the and a legitimate question I think about any of the top three two or three teams after Golden State is if this team existed in one of those gap times in the NBA where you're sort of you're in between Michael and Kobe and Shaq and LeBron's rise to excellence you know we you have those little two or three year periods where you know you had a Detroit team without much star power winning a championship you had some of these Spurs teams that won that were that were more part of a great dynasty than individually a, an unbeatable sort right. of team. Um, I think of Miami in 2006. I think of Dallas in 2011. You had these years where the, the, the championship was very winnable for four or five teams. And so you ask yourself, okay, are we, are we doing it wrong or are we just living in an age where it's just it, the outside circumstances make it ridiculously hard to win a championship compared to other times in the NBA? And I think it's the latter, especially when you combine that you have Golden State in the West, and you have the greatest player of the last couple decades since Michael over in the East. Um, it sounds like a cop out because then ultimately what I'm saying is, well, it's just too hard to win a title. You know, it's but but you, you're asking the question like, what's the biggest obstacle? I think the the biggest obstacle for the Rockets outwardly is Golden State and everybody else. That's the biggest obstacle. But I think inwardly, it's is Harden. You know, is Harden a a, a top dog guy on a team that you think can win a championship. And then if it, if indeed the other two guys are building around here in the near term, and if they, you know, if they decide to extend them long term, uh, you know, Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony are in their early thirties. When does age kick in with this whole thing? And I think they've got some big decisions to make too with Clint Capella. You know, he's going to be a free agent not too long from now. Like this new NBA, like the value on some of the things Clint does is ridiculously high. You know, does the new owner want to go way into luxury tax territory? Those are all, I don't know if they're obstacles as much as they are questions, but I think obstacles outwardly, Golden State, obstacles inwardly, the the age of the complementary cast that they're putting around Harden. Because Eric Gordon's not a young player right, either, right. you know? So that, those he's injury are the big prone, things. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, medical is big. That's that's an obstacle for sure. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting. Last week on the show, of course, we had Hunter here uh, joining Jeremy and myself, but we also had Derek Fogel. And uh, Derek wanted to talk about tennis and, you know, Wimbledon and just the, the, the legacy of Federer, you know, winning, what, 17 why? titles. Oh, hold on. Let me get to this. So I asked him a question. Why aren't, you know, their Americans kind of up in that level? And, you know, he suggested that you've got guys like Andy Murray who might be – one of the best tennis players of all time, but he's in that era against Nadal, Djokovic. I guess my question for you is, is we see that right now in the NBA, exactly what you just pointed to. Is it it fun to be able to watch those sports when you have an era of a dominant team or a dominant player, or do you wish there's more parity? No, I I like, I'm more of a fan when it comes to the NBA of, of the upper tier. And maybe it's, you know, maybe in the moment it's easier to say that because the Rockets are a team that can, with a straight face, at least say that they can. They have a shot. They have a shot. Yeah, right. yeah they you know as good a shot as anybody who's not Golden State to beat Golden State. Um, so if you know if we were doing this podcast in in New Orleans or if we were doing it in you know Toronto or something like that, we might be singing a different tune. 
but just generally speaking, as an M- I've been an NBA fan for you know for almost four decades now. So I've it's always been a more fun league to watch when when there's been kind of a top heavy league with stars sort of driving the thing. And I love basketball, so I can sit down and watch two teams play on a January night and enjoy watching basketball. I also gamble on basketball. So like I find ways to make it interesting. <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> but, it, it, but just to answer your, I'm, I'm being kind of tongue in cheek, but I just to answer your question. I personally, my personal preference is that it's a more fun league to watch. The basketball is when there, it's a star driven top heavy league. We saw that with golf too, when Tiger Woods was dominating. You know, love that. The numbers were so high. I, the average, the, the numbers dictate that that's what the average fan likes too. You know, that like the people aren't being turned away in droves because Golden State's great. We, we, there's two things that we love. Okay, as Americans, we we love to complain about things, of course, right? And social media only feeds that frenzy. But the second thing we we love, if whether or not we want to admit, it, is we love to watch greatness. And I think the Tiger Woods era bears that out. I think LeBron James in the ratings when he's on TV bear it. We love watching the. And I think the ratings when watch when in the finals, people watching Golden State like the ratings were fine this year for the NBA Finals, and it finished in five games. Um, we we love watching greatness for a variety of reasons. I think the biggest one is so that we can tell people ten to fifteen years from now, yeah, I watched that live, you know. You know, it's it's not as big a deal anymore, I guess, because YouTube contains right. everything. But like back when things were hard to find and hard to watch, I love the fact that I like my Halcyon watching years of age, like sixteen to twenty eight, was spent watching Michael Jordan. You know, and was spent um, watching you know in, in football, uh, watching the San Francisco Forty ers and the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Dallas Cowboys, like all those things, like all the things that I tell my kids. I'm the old crusty. Guy. Like, you go watch this. You go watch this player. That's when. That's back when when men were men in the league. They weren't talking about their shoes and their agents, you know. But um, uh, yeah, we love greatness. Yeah, we, we love greatness. And I, I, I get. You know, I guess when you're talking about greatness, it kind of reminds me of uh, J.J. Watt's Reebok, like hunt greatness. And, you know, you're heading out to the Greenbrier here in uh, just a few days as the Texans open up training camp. You know, there's a lot of speculation that Savage is going to be the guy, but Watson's probably going to come in at some point this season. When, When you're heading out to the Greenbrier... What are you looking for? Oh man, with the quarterback or just, just in quarterback general? situation, the offense. A lot of guys getting into year two. Do they yeah. make that next step? Yeah, there's a lot of things. Um, I was kind of assimilating them last night because uh, I, I had to get a lot of my Houston press writing done before I go lose whatever they're going to pay me at the Golden Nugget this <laughs> the next couple of days. Um, but I, I'll start with the quarterback position. Um, I think I think Bill O'Brien is handling it publicly the right way right now which is we've been down this road before where he's talked about it being an open competition, and that just got frustrating for everybody involved. You know what I mean? Where that We remember the Hoyer-Mallet thing, which right. we saw play out on TV because of hard knocks. I, I, you know, I think when it's that way for fans, I, I do think like as bad as Brock Osweiler was last year, remember how comforting it was just to go into the season with a guy who was at least named the starting quarterback of the team. So I think he's handling it the right way, but I think he's also, you can tell by some of the things he said, that Deshaun Watson is ahead of where Bill O'Brien thought he would be. Um, you can tell he's a very hardworking, smart kid. We know he's talented because we've seen him play. Um, I, if I'm Bill O'Brien, one of my goals with the quarterback position during training camp is to, you know, outside of practice, 
you know, in my private moments in my office is to come up with some sort of uh, shortened down Deshaun Watson specific version of the playbook. Okay. It could, because if this system, if this system is so complicated, and by the way, if what's keeping Savage, if what's keep somebody ahead of a way more talented player is the fact they've just been in the building for three years around the system. That sends up you, some red You have fun, a broken right? system. Right. Like you have a bad system. So that I, I strongly feel that. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a X's and O film guy. I'm a football fan like most of us are that do stuff like this. But I, I do know efficiency. You know what I mean? Like I was in the business world long enough to know that. And if you have a system where it holds down talented people just because they haven't been in the building long enough for average people to now go take really important jobs, you have a broken system. So O'Brien's system is what it is, but I think what we've seen good coaches do with rookie quarterbacks who are significantly more talented than the veteran guys who were there, I think back to Russell Wilson and, and Matt Flynn in Seattle as an example, is you come up with a, with a shortened version of the playbook. The thing you, you identify the things Deshaun Watson does really well, and Bill O'Brien's goal over the next four to five weeks should be to ascertain what Deshaun Watson does well and in his private moments come up with the Deshaun Watson version of your, of your system. I'm not saying change the whole system. I'm saying slim it down to the things he does. I'd rather have Deshaun Watson. This is the sense I get. I, my sense I get, and I say sense because we still don't really know what Savage is. I've never seen someone with less a body of work be anointed a starting quarterback for an NFL team and everybody just expected to go, oh, he's a starter, I guess. He hasn't thrown a touchdown. He and Deshaun Watson have the same number of touchdown passes. Okay, And the so, same amount as all of us in the room combined. Right, yeah, right, right, say, right yeah. exactly. Yeah, we're tied with them. So I, I would rather have... The sense I get is I'd rather have Deshaun Watson out there operating with 50% of the playbook than Tom Savage out there operating with 100% of the playbook. So my hope is that, the, that some of the things we've heard O'Brien say are sort of a recognition of that. So that's specific to the quarter. I have a few other things you know, that, I, that I target as well, just you know, certain position groups. It's, you know, some of the depth chart stuff is really scary with this team right now. Like where, the, where they're good at positions, they're really, really good. Um, but where they don't have starters... Right tackle, uh, safety. Um, to me, that's alarming, not having a guy on the offensive line when you potentially are going to have a quarterback who's yeah. often injured and then another a rookie. I yeah. mean, it seems like you need to bolster that line. Right, right tackle, the safety opposite Andre Howe, and the other outside linebacker opposite Whitney Merciless. The, like if the season started tomorrow, who would the starters be at those positions? That's a really scary thought because it's not like those are competitions among guys – who it's not the clash of the Titans. You know what I mean? Like the guys who are competing for the right tackle spot are Kendall Lamb, Chris Clark, Brino Giacomini, and Julian Davenport. Like the, you know, like there's no killers in there, at least not none that we know of yet. Um, the safety spot is all undrafted, formerly undrafted and late drafted guy. You know, it's Co- Curtis Drummond and Corey Moore and KJ Dillon and Eddie Pleasant. Lonnie Ballantine, like the highest drafted guy out of all those guys is K.J. Dillon in the fifth round last year. Outside linebacker, it's Brennan Scarlett, who was an undrafted rookie last year, and I don't know who's after him at outside linebacker. So that's a really scary thing when you think about it. There's smart coaches in the league that I think are going to be able to exploit it, exploit those oh, sure. things, if, and, you know, unless, we're not, unless they see something inside that building that we don't see. So those, those are my biggest areas of concern are those spots where they haven't identified somebody yet, and O'Brien – not just sort of conceding it's going to be Savage, then Watson. Just like finding a way 
if Deshaun Watson is as ready as he looks like he's striving to be, finding a way to get him on the field. Yeah, and what 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 like kind of looking at some of these reports, you know, we have all these question marks at certain positions. It just kind of goes like year after year, Houston seems to be just absent-minded on offense. And even like in the draft too, like you're looking at all these decisions. Like if you go back a couple of years in the draft, it's like they're so singularly focused on defense yeah. and just forgetting that there's the other side of the ball they got to play. Yeah, or or the times that they actually do invest in things over the offensive side, it just it hasn't worked. Um, you know, Xavier Suofilo was the 33rd pick in the draft. We're still waiting for I him still to roll my eyes. A plus player. Yeah, they, they, they could have had a they could have had a quarterback. Yeah, you know, Derek Carr. Absolutely. Yeah, with Jimmy Garoppolo. Right. You know, like there there were there were guys there. There's no question about it. Um, yeah, you know, just again, like I think a lot of people on the outside think this Texans team is better than it is, and I hope I'm wrong. By the way, I mean I've said on on my radio show the Texans. No, I've said I think they're going to be seven and nine this year. Um, I, I could because I think people look at the faces of this team when you're not covering them on a daily basis, and you go, "Wow, there's a lot of talent on this team." DeAndre Hopkins, Jadavion Clowney, J.J. Watt. They traded up to get Deshaun Watson, who everybody feels great about right now. Lamar Miller, Whitney Merciless, on and on and on and on. Like they're 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 good to very good players are very very good to great. Um, but. There are so many. God, if you start examining the depth chart, there's so many scary little things going on with this depth chart of this team. DeAndre Hopkins is the most experienced wide receiver on this team, and he's heading into his fifth season. He has four years of experience. He's the most experienced wide receiver, and not just that, he has the same amount of experience as the next three guys on the roster behind him. There's four receivers we know are going to make this team. They could show. They could each show up with a peg leg and, and a luchador mask on with a blindfold, and they'd all make the team because there's no bodies. You know, it's, it's Hopkins, Will Fuller, Braxton Miller, and Jalen Strong. They're all going to make this team, even if they're average at camp or below average. They're all going to make the team. Hopkins has four years' experience. Those next three guys have combined four years' experience. How much does Wes Welker help that receiving core? And uh, I don't know. I, I the Texans seem like they need a, a guy in the slot who can be dominant. Yeah. I mean, is Wilker the guy to coach him up? or? Well, if if he's not, I don't know who is. Can he come off the coaching staff and actually suit up? That's a question I posed on the air one time, and I, I don't know if... Like, I don't know if they thought it was very funny, but I, but I <laughs> said, okay, where would Wes Welker be on the depth chart right now? Like, if, he, if you gave him two months to go get into shape and he got his head checked out because he had concussion issues right. and he was ready to go, like, if you could get him into football shape, where is he right now? Like, he's probably your starting slot receiver on this team <laughs> right now. Um, but he, I, obviously he's going to coach, so, you, so how much will he help? Like, on paper, it's a hire that makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, he was maybe the greatest slot receiver in the history of the game. He played for a lot of great coaches, you know, both great systems that also benefited him. They did. They did. Right. But, but it's the same system that they're trying right. to put right. in here. So just in terms of how he could benefit this wide receiving court, and I think this special teams too, he was a pretty good return guy when they would put him back there. So on paper, there's, there's a lot that Wes Welker experientially can bring to the table. I have no idea how good a communicator he is or how good a teacher he is, which is, that's the key thing. Those are things that, we won't know until the season starts and we start to hear stories from inside the building about either how great he is at coaching or we just won't hear it. If he's not good at it, we, put, we just won't hear anything about him, you know, um, publicly. You know, privately, maybe you hear things, but I, that'll be the key. Like, his, his resume lines up perfectly for what you need at that position right now. You know, a, a, a guy who overcame adversity, a guy who overcame being doubted, 
and then played at a very, very high level for some successful teams at a position of need for your team makes a ton of sense. If he can communicate and he can teach, it's a home run hire. You know, for a guy who's the back end of your coaching staff, I, I do want to pivot real quick. Uh, yeah, I, I know you have just a few more minutes, yeah. but uh, Matt Rule is the new head coach yeah. at Baylor. You had him on your show. What was it? Two weeks ago? Is, is, uh, is, is that a week right? ago? About ten days ago. A week ago. Yeah, Friday. and you've got a son that's going to be at Baylor this year. So yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just hoping that you're going to start paying a little more attention to Baylor, and you know, we'll see you up there on Saturdays for games. But from what you've seen from Matt Rule, I mean, just the rhetoric, the, the just listening to him speak. Yeah. What's your What's your take on him? I think it's a great hire. Like, I, I, th- I mean, look, he was one of the most sought after coaches in the country for the last couple of years after what he did at Temple, which is nothing short of remarkable, by the way, what he did at at Temple. You know, he he had that program winning double digit games, and it was a that was one of those perennial weak sister downtrodden right, right. programs. So. Again, it's one of those things like on paper, wow, what a great hire. And then you hear the guy speak, and you go, wow, what a great hire. And you hear all the practices he's put into place specific to Baylor. You know, I I say specific to Baylor. These are things he said he was doing at Temple as well. It's just that these are things that certainly scratch Baylor where it itches right now as far as PR goes. And I think as far as just functionality goes, you know, making sure that that university is is hopefully an example of of how to handle all the all the bad things that went on there for for so many years, um, so he's he's certainly paying more than lip service to it. He communicates it with his players all the time about being respectful of women and and you know being respectful of the law and things like that. Um, on the field, I think the guy's a really good coach. Um, I'll be interested to see the style of play that he employs there. I think Baylor, you can speak better to this, um, Austin, than I can, but. Uh, uh, you know, I think Baylor fans have probably become used to a certain type of offense when they go to those games that yep, are a big. Absolutely, that yeah. are a big, and that's the big question mark from us is kind of like, what are we going to see on offense? Yeah, part of the experience yeah. there is 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 you know, hey, all of a sudden the, the, that program, football wise, had an identity, you know, and it it was going out and just running teams off the field in the first half of games. I, you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if that's what rules intentions are on the offensive side of the ball, though we did ask him, McLean asked him stylistically what he planned on doing. And he, the answer, if I remember, it sounded something like a little more traditional than what Art Bryles used to run. I think, you know, probably everything's more traditional than what Art Bryles used to run. The question is, is it as effective? Does it win football games, you know? Um, but I think it's a, it's a great hire considering everything that was swirling around that program. I mean, you guys can speak better to this than I can, but God, you had to be mentally prepared for them to be taking a step backwards in terms of the yeah. pedigree of coach that they could bring in. And Matt Rule was a guy who was who was sought after by some of the biggest programs out there. I mean, I could tell you last year from just my perspective, I went to the, you know, I have season tickets. I try to go to every game that I can where I'm, when I'm in town. Uh, but I went to the homecoming game uh, against TCU. And yeah. that was just disgusting to me just to see all of the, I don't know, the university was very split because you had a lot of people that thought that Bryles was just a scapegoat for the border region. Sure. People wearing CAB shirts, uh, somebody in the suite at the 50 yeah. yard line had a CAB flag. I ended up just being so disgusted that I left at halftime. We had two more home games in Waco. Typically I would never miss them. I, I don't think I'd miss a game in like five or six years. Yeah. I didn't go to the last two. Yeah. That's, that's tough. You know, the, the, 
the biggest thing, rule, biggest challenge rule may have is reunifying everybody. I mean, again, you guys know you guys know that better right, than, right, than I do when right. it comes to the, the the culture and the feelings about the program. I'm about to find out about it for the next four years and beyond. <laughs> I was going to sure. say you you are about to be baptized, so to speak, into the green and gold. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of dysfunction, I guess, a little bit. But it, hopefully, it's not. It's it, it doesn't last because rules had kind of had this two tier job where on you know the one hand he's trying to re- reorganize the football team into a winning unit. Yeah. And then he's also got this PR campaign that he's been having to wage, you know, and really taking these really pointed questions from media figures, some of them who personally don't like Baylor very much. Right. And he's done very well. And I've been very impressed with that. My, now, my question is, okay, well, you've accomplished, you know, probably one of the bigger objectives you're going to have as a Baylor football coach in this yeah. era. But now can you translate uh, your schemes into winning? Yeah, he's got to win games. Yeah, exactly. He's got to win games. He's winning the offseason right now, but yeah. he's, he's got to win football games. <clears throat> I guess the good news is the expectations are not all that high. Right. You know, I think no. they got picked like <laughs> right. seventh in the Big 12 or something like that. Yeah, um, I, I think we're just hoping for a bowl game this year. To be yeah, I, yeah, you know, it's it's a fascinating time in the Big 12 for a couple of reasons. But, the you know, one is kind of this young generation of head coaches that have come into the league. I mean, that's a pretty sporty um, buzz factor group of coaches that are new to the to the league, head coaches that are new to the league this year with Lincoln Riley and Tom Herman and Matt Rule. Um, those are big hires for the Big 12. And, you know, you've got Cliff Kingsbury. You know, it's mostly a younger coach kind of league other than Bill Snyder and Gary Patterson probably. I mean, Mike Gundy's like one of the elder statesmen. He just turned 50. I know, that's crazy. He's a man. He's 50. <laughs> um, but I think it's going to be interesting these next few years, not just in the Big 12 but in all of college football because of, you know, the, the earth's going to move again in college football probably or at least be open to moving again when these TV contracts come up. And the dynamic that was put into place that set up the leagues the way they are now with cable television and it being so driven of all these leagues trying to expand their geographic footprint because of cable TV, well, that's going to be obsolete by the time the next TV contract rolls around because everything's going to be streamed through the Internet. There is no geographic footprint. The, the geographic footprint of the Internet is the world, and that's right. it. It's just one gigantic world. So, you know, we're left with these bastardized conferences. You know, we're left right. with Maryland and Rutgers in the Big Ten and Colorado in the Pac-12 and Nebraska in the Big Ten and it just, in a way, it sucks because a lot of good rivalries got sort of flushed down the toilet and the whole thing. But you hope that maybe when this, you know, this next wave of TV contracts comes up, that maybe some of that stuff sort of reestablishes itself or that expanding um, for some of these conferences, like good expansion, not like necessary expansion, but good expansion kind of makes sense. But it's, it's certainly, it's interesting time, especially for Baylor. You know, like yeah. Baylor's one of those schools that you guys know that in realignment, there's, you guys have to have this perpetual we were fear. We were in 2010. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when Texas and Oklahoma and everybody are getting ready to leave, ready to, leave to go to the Pac-12, or Pac-10 back then, and you had like six Big 12 schools that were like, holy crap, like we're, you know. Yeah. At that time, we thought we were going to the Big East, but. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Well, we thought we were going to the Big East. There were some guys, I mean, you know, there's always been like this contingent of fans in the Big 12 that think we belong in like the Sun Belt or the right. CUSA or whatever. But yeah, I, I, I thought we were going to a mid-major for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's why winning games is important too, though. Like that's, I think winning games insulates you from being at risk winning football games. Like none of the other sports honestly matter when it comes to realignment. Um, you know, basketball may matter a little bit as sort of an ancillary, but at the end of the day, if you have a winning football program, it kind of insulates you from being um, swallowed up by realignment. You know, like it's it, it's it doesn't make you impervious to it, I don't think, but um, it's it certainly 
it helps it, better to be nine and three when the earth starts to shift than be four and eight, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Sean, we definitely appreciate you uh, stopping by the studio this week. And again, Sean is the, uh, the host of the triple threat on sports radio, six ten here yeah, in yeah. Uh, Houston. And also you've got the, uh, the CBS show on Sunday nights and you're heading off to the Greenbrier for training camp. Yeah. Uh, for those that want to follow you on social media, Sean T. Pendergast, but uh, what's going to happen with the CBS show on Sunday night when the football season starts? Oh, uh, it'll go on hiatus. Cause I do the post, game show for the Texans. So uh, my last CBS show for this year will be uh, the Sunday before Labor Day. And it'll be every Sunday until then, except this coming Sunday, the 30th, when I will be flying up to, as you said, the uh, the Greenbrier um, to go cover the Texans. Ted and I are going to be up there. Ted Johnson and I are going to be up there uh, covering the Texans for a week. So yeah, the CBS show will go on hiatus. And my favorite part of the year, my favorite broadcasting assignment that I that I have and have ever had is the Texans postgame show. That's my favorite thing to do is get there. Get Hot the, takes coming in. Well, right. it's, a, it's a fun show to do, but I love every show. I mean, you guys know from just, you know, from from doing a podcast, like everything's a process, right? Like you don't just sit down, turn the mics on like you sit there and you plan it out. And this is who we're going to have on. Right. And this is what we're going to ask him. And so every show has a process. And I just enjoy the process of the Texans postgame show the most. You know, I love getting to the game like three hours early, getting in the press box, saying hi to people, getting a little meal, sitting down, digging into all the different storylines of the game. And then you watch a game. You watch, you know, you watch an NFL game for free, you know. <laughs> and then you go and you, you do three hours of radio with your friends, you know, and then talking to maniacs on the phone who are – who are absolutely insane, but it's that that's my my favorite thing that that I do or have done in my ten years coming up on my ten year anniversary in this business of is the Texan stuff. I love doing the Texan stuff. It's my favorite. Well, we definitely look forward to uh, listening to those post game shows, and ho- hopefully, there's more than seven wins this year. Uh, I hope so too. Yeah, cross, yeah, crossing my fingers. I, yeah, yeah. Just to be very clear, like I I say that they're going to be seven and nine, so so that because I, I try to be right. You know what I mean? Like I you know, and I and I I, I try to be honest and I try to be correct. Um. Yeah. No. I hope they go thirteen and three. I hope they blow me out of the water. I hope they're. <laughs> I hope they're wrong. I hope that I'm wrong. They make me wrong. Um. But uh, yeah, the post game's not fun when it's a when when losses happen. Yeah, I don't think podcasting's fun after the losses happen. But Sean, we definitely appreciate you stopping by the studio this week me. and uh, enjoy the time at the Golden Nugget and bring back uh, Tillman as the uh, the new owner. <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can. I'll see either that or maybe if I'm lucky at the tables, maybe I'll come back as the new I, owner. I support that. Yeah, <laughs> you guys don't want that. You don't want me as the owner. Thank you guys. I'll see you guys up in Waco probably. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. All right. Sounds Thanks, good. Sean. Closing time. Again, we just had two great guests join us on episode 102 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch for joining me on the phone line. Uh, Absolutely enjoyed talking with him. And then, of course, Sean Pendergast joined us in studio. Jeremy, I I know you weren't here for the Deitch interview. Uh, You were here for the Pendergast interview. Just reflect on both interviews for you this week because I thought we, we hit a home run. Uh, yeah, Sean is always a pleasure to have on. Um, you know, he, I love, I, you know, I'm really excited about the fact that he will be, um, talking about Baylor a little bit more in the future. Right. (laughs) I know. I love to pick this guy's brain about everything Texans and Rockets. Um, but I love to be able to pick his brain about Baylor, like kind of when he gets into it, you know, seeing a little bit more what's going on in the field and with the organization. I thought he had a lot of good things to say about Matt Rule. I'm really, I'm really impressed so far with Matt Rule. And, um, but, you know, sh- kind of shifting gears, kind of what else we talked about. Um, I-, I think he heightened my anxiety a little bit about the Texans, especially on offense, like drawing all those question marks, all those positions that we don't have names for yet, um, or at least names that were, um, you know, 
worthy of we're familiar with yeah exactly we're familiar right. with like all these guys are like no names you know, like fifth and sixth round draft picks or free agents and so um it's it, it's gonna be fun as a texans fan hopefully his predictions are wrong and we don't go seven to nine you know it's kind of funny if we do end up if the texans do end up blowing up his predictions and he's talking about the kind of callers he gets you know at six ten, and i'm like well <laughs> you know if he is wrong he's going to be on the receiving end of well, a lot I mean, of it's the same thing when we when we podcast i mean for those of you that don't know uh typically in the fall sundays we record after the texans game just right. in case anything happens we want to be able to discuss you know the big storylines that emerge from the game. You know if if Deshaun Watson comes in and in, in relief of an injured Tom Savage and throws hopefully four touchdowns, <laughs> yeah. we want to be able to talk about that. So that's why we kind of push our episodes out a little bit later on 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 you know Sundays. But you know I think we enjoy talking Texans victories a little bit more than losses. And I think I think that's the same for everyone who follows the NFL. I mean whatever team you support. You want to see that team win each Sunday? Oh, sure. That that's that's not really the question. I think, but if you're a seasoned Texans fan, even if you're not like into the X's and O's, so to speak, of uh, football, you're you're looking at the Texans and their performance over the last couple of years under Bill O'Brien. You give Bill O'Brien credit where it's due, but you recognize that there are some systemic problems within how the team is managed and how they're picking people on, on the offense side of the ball. You know, I've, I've said for years now that the Texans have this myopic focus on defense thinking it's going to win them every football game. And it does sometimes, you know, but you can't get lucky on offense and hope to make it to the Super Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't think the Texans are going to make it to the Super Bowl this year. I would love to be wrong. I just don't foresee it happening. But uh, let's talk about the Richard Deitch interview real quick. I I know that you weren't on the call, uh, but you did listen to the audio. You did listen to the interview. Uh, I was absolutely fascinated with his takes on uh, specifically Mayweather and McGregor, and then also uh, kind of comparing that to the Ramzan Kadyrov uh, HBO Sports uh, feature this past week. And I don't know, I kind of like that balance of sports and politics because I think that's something that Richard excels at. I think that he's very comfortable uh, discussing really any topic. And I know for us on the podcast, that's something that we want to do. We want to talk sports, politics, pop culture, anything that we find relevant, we want to discuss. And uh, I thought the MMA comparison from him was quite fascinating. Right. And, and, you know, it was interesting. You guys talked about sort of the intersection of sports and politics and how a lot of people complain, including myself, about how political sports journalism has become. And I don't mind guys having a blog or a podcast or even a show on HBO right about about those things and how they go together and how within sports is sort of a microcosm of our culture and you're going to see you know we, we can have a discussion about you know domestic violence let's say and when we're talking about the NFL but i think for your day-to-day sports reporting to see politics thrown in your face every day where it's like unavoidable and i think sometimes you do want to escape that especially yeah, with, especially with as like toxic as a political environment is in the united states right now with the trump administration i mean both republicans and democrats are not necessarily right. satisfied with him and there's like a toxicity so sometimes people go to sports as a tr- uh, a way to escape that. it is it's, it's an escape and 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 I, I you know i'll be honest if you're looking at the at the vast majority of sports reporting and the way that politics is presented it's presented from a left-wing perspective so if you're kind of center right or if you're on the right and you're a sports fan it's hard to avoid this and this is only amplified when the the senior editor at espn comes out and is like yeah no politics and sports is not going away this is who we are now which you know it's ironic because it flies right in the face of all of the fan outcry, all the letters, all the emails, all the tweets. This guy's like saying, "Well, you know, uh, too bad." You know, like, like tough I crap. I, I don't, I don't mind that take. Like to me, I think, I think that's fine. Like for us on the podcast, uh, you know, we've had some discussion on whether or not we should talk politics specifically on this show and internally as our group. And 
I want to. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. To me, I find it fascinating. Like, I don't want to talk politics 24-7. I don't think anyone does. But I think I think when you have cases like the Ramsekadirov, uh, you know, using sport as a mean to, you know, execute gays, I mean, that to me is something worth talking about. And right. And, and that's, and see, again, I don't have a problem with that. I guess it's just where I go to get my bread and butter sports. Here's the thing with any basic cable package, like ESPN is usually a part of that, or it's like a, you know, a small addition onto your cable package. Right. Um, people buy HBO for one or two things. Right. And so I feel like that's kind of more an appropriate venue for that. I mean, ESPN is going to do what ESPN is going to do, but I think one of the reasons that people are unplugging and, and they're losing subscribers literally in the millions is this sort of infusion of, you know, political opinion along with basic sports. I think when people watch ESPN, when I watch ESPN, like I just want the, I just want the, you just want the highlights. I just want the highlights. Exactly. I, I want the, I want the, the bone dry reporting on sports. I want, I want some comedy in there to kind of keep it interesting, but I don't, I don't need heavy, heavy social issues in my face every time I watch it because I am going there to escape. I am going there to, to kind of just just mind them a little bit because that's why people go to games. I mean, it's 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 a it's escapism, it's a diversion. But I, I kind of feel like there's an agenda now with a lot of these reporters, and you know whether it's because they feel like uh, you know, sports journalism has become boring or that it needs to be more. Um, that's I, I think another issue that needs to be addressed within the culture of sports journalism. But I think if you're just like an average fan, you're kind of tired of some of this. That, that's a fair point, um, but. I thought it was a great conversation with Richard. Definitely enjoyed him having on the podcast. And, of course, it was great to have uh, Sean on the podcast as well. But uh, before we uh, close out this week's show, uh, we, we do want to touch on a little, I guess, political subject matter. And, and that's this past week. Uh, it was announced that John McCain, who is the senator from Arizona, uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer. And uh, very, very tragic news. He's one of the elder statesmen uh, in the Republican Party, specifically the Senate, uh, you know, was... Republican nominee against Barack Obama in 2008. I actually had the chance to meet him in the spring of 2008 during the primary season uh, when he made a stop in Waco, Texas, was able to sit behind him on stage at a uh, a campaign rally. So uh, kind of tough news to hear uh, this week. And and, and Jeremy, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts. Like, what does this mean long term for not only Senator McCain, but uh, the Republican Party? And, you know, because he's almost one of the faces of the Republican Party. Yeah. And I think um, depending on how you look at that to its detriment, <laughs> John McCain has sort of represented along with Mitch McConnell, the establishment and the, the establishment wing of the Republican Party. And it's kind of seen as a DC insider by, li- by a lot of conservatives. You know, if you're Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, you know, um, you're, you're that kind of Republican. You kind of see him as like a part of the problem. But regardless of that, he is the he is an elder statesman, and I think he has contributed a lot to the party in a, in a positive way overall. Um, it is worth noting that if, if we're going to look at you know depending on how you know aggressive this cancer is, which you know based on what we've been talking about, it doesn't look entirely good for him. The prognosis is not good. Uh, the way Arizona picks senators to replace those who vacate their seats unexpectedly is the governor gets to do it. So the governor would get to pick um, the, the senator to replace, and it has to be from the same party. So he, he can't just pick anybody he wants. So it, it's likely that um, I think uh, Kelly Ward is a name that's been thrown around a little bit. Um, she's running for Senate in 2018 against uh, Jeff Flake. So 
Um, we'll 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 see what happens there. But it is it is tragic. I, I feel I feel bad for the McCains. You know, his family has contributed a lot. I mean, he's one of his daughters has like a radio show and she's on TV a lot. So like they're they're kind of a publicly visible family. And so it's you know it's tragic any time that this this happens. Yeah, absolutely. So thoughts and prayers to uh, John McCain and his family. Uh, we're definitely pulling for you. And as I think Barack Obama sent out a tweet. Give him hell, John. Uh, I think the U.S. is kind of rallying behind you right now. But uh, interesting times uh, coming with you know the, the Republican Party here in the uh, the next few months and years. Uh, but uh, Jeremy, episode 102 of the podcast, I yeah, I thought it was great. I just love the discussion that we had with Richard Deitch uh, from Sports Illustrated, and also the discussion that we had here in studio with Sean Pendergast. It's uh, I think it's the fourth time we've had him on the show, second time we've had him here in studio. Always a pleasure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Looking look really looking forward to uh, you know everybody's work in the fall, but especially Sean's. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing him at a Baylor tailgate. He said he was going to be at the, uh, the <laughs> Baylor Oklahoma game, uh, and it sounds like John McClain has already uh, preemptively hooked him up with. Uh, tickets but we definitely hope to have them at our tailgate uh in in waco but uh it's been a great episode and we want to remind our listeners that you can get a free audio book download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash weekly brewcast there's tons of great content out there uh we definitely want to check want you to check that out again that's audibletrial.com slash weekly brewcast and you can also follow our work on weekly brewcast Uh, just search that on facebook twitter instagram and youtube and you can also subscribe to our work uh, at weeklybrewcast.com but uh, jeremy paxson co-host co-founder of the weekly brew podcast it's great to have you in studio this week hope you enjoyed it i i did i absolutely enjoyed it it's uh it was a good escape from my (laughs) (laughs) day-to-day totally fair well uh on behalf of my co-host this week Jeremy Paxson. We want to say thanks to our two guests, Richard Deitch and Sean Pendergast, for joining us. My name is Austin Statton, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 